Almighty God and Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So, what do the following have in common? Bucky Badger, Rudis Buckeye, Purdue Pete, the San Diego Chicken, Nittany Lion, Boomer of the Indiana Pacers, and the Notre Dame Leprechaun. They're all mascots. That's right. And so, what does a mascot do? What's the job of a mascot? They're there to pump you up. They cheer, right? Yeah, the job of a mascot is to support the team, to wave around the pom-poms or do whatever he does in order to show support for the team. Now, it doesn't matter how badly the team is playing. It doesn't matter how many mistakes they make. The mascot's not there to criticize the team. The mascot is there to support the team. Now, it's not uncommon for you and me to sort of sign Jesus up as a mascot, as something of a cheerleader, waving pom-poms on the sidelines of our lives in order to affirm whatever it is we feel is right for us to do. Now this Jesus, the cheerleader or the mascot, is an idol. That's a false Christ. Okay, so don't misunderstand. And this idol does not want you to feel uncomfortable. This idol does not want you to hurt in any way. And it reminds me a little bit of St. Peter after Jesus was pronounced by Peter to be the Christ. He confessed him as the Christ. And then Jesus shared with all the disciples what the Christ would do, suffer and die and then rise. Peter stood in his way because he had a false idea, an idol, of what Jesus was supposed to be in his own mind. Not a suffering savior, and certainly not one who would call his disciples to suffer with him and bear their own cross. No, th this idol is here to affirm us, to support us in whatever it is we feel is right. give you an example. Have you ever heard someone say, well, my Jesus would do this or that, or my Jesus would never do the other? You ever heard that? My Jesus would never condemn you for loving whomever you choose to love. 
You see, that is um, employing Jesus, that's enlisting him in the support of gay marriage. Or my Jesus would never condemn people to hell. That's enlisting Jesus to support universalism. The idea that, that everybody ends up in nirvana or heaven or whatever it is you imagine the afterlife to be. It's up to you. But if there is a hell, there's no one in it. That's the idol. Or, my Jesus would hold a woman's hand while she's having an abortion. See, that's enlisting Jesus in the cause of reproductive rights, which is a nice way of saying murder. So where does this idol come from? Well, Roman numeral number one in your outline identifies the problem. The problem is a faulty worldview. A worldview is a philosophy of life. It's the lens through which you view everything. And your lens may be tinted different ways, you know, but you see everything through this philosophy through these ideals that you've adopted. They're presuppositions you have that you bring to the table whenever you make a decision, whenever you're faced with a choice. You bring these presuppositions with you, your baggage with you. This is your worldview. And the problem here is what we call ethical hedonism. Ethical hedonism. And it simply means this, that feelings, rather than God's word, constitute truth. Truth is all about what you feel. And, and that idea is like a contagion today. It's, you find it everywhere. It's, it's, it's in all of us. So feelings rather than God's word constitute truth. And point A, this false Christ or this idol exalts pleasure and avoids pain. God would not want you to hurt. See? This Christ wants you to be happy. But what's not to like about that? That's appealing. He exalts pleasure and avoids pain, always cheering you on in the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness. So, it goes like this. As long as others aren't being hurt, uh, my choices are my choices. Point B, this false Christ avoids the law of God and any mention of hell. It avoids any mention of hell and the law of God. To, to admit that hell exists you have to admit that we live in a consequential world, that what we do has consequences. You know, someone famously said not long ago, elections have consequences. Well, so does sin. First of all, sin offends God. It's an affront. Sin is an affront to God. It provokes God. 
And that provocation of God demands compensation. Demands a redress. Demands satisfaction. That's why there's hell. You cordon off individuals who want nothing at all to do with you. Meaning nothing at all to do with God. You cordon them off. And this is why God gave us his law. He not only shows us what is right, but he warns us about the consequences of what we do. Don't go there. That's what the law says. You'll suffer. And sin has consequences. We see it all the time. We see it in broken marriages. We see it in the opioid crisis. The, the ancient rabbis would say, whoever takes a life destroys an entire world. Because when you take one life, you take away all the offspring of that individual down through the generations, which would populate an entire world. Whoever commits an abortion destroys an entire world. That is to say, our sins go far beyond ourselves. They have a ripple effect generationally. They affect not only us, but many, many others, down through the generations, even into eternity, if we allow it. So number two, the result of all this is, if, if you're following the cheerleading Jesus, if, if you adopt ethical hedonism, feelings rather than God's word constituting truth, you have no need of the real Jesus at all. Point A, you will not call on the doctor unless you realize you're sick. There's no need. You feel no need to do so. Lost sheep don't recognize the value of the shepherd until they're lost. Point B, avoiding the law encourages lawlessness. That's what John writes in his first letter. Sin is lawlessness. Avoiding the law incentivizes, it encourages sin. Whatever you incentivize, you get more of. And as Lutherans, we say this is preaching people into hell. But when we assure them that their Jesus is supportive of whatever choices they make, we may do that by our silence. We may do that overtly through what we say. But that's not the real Jesus. It's an idol. Roman numeral three, the solution to all this, we do not argue people into the faith. We confess or we proclaim the real Jesus. That's what we do. We confess the real Christ. Christ who died and rose for all. The Christ who point A is not just a feeling. He's not a feeling at all. 
He is objective, unchanging truth. He is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The real Jesus is above our feelings. He, he judges our feelings. He is the judge after all. And he's the savior. He forgives all of the thoughts, the words, and the deeds that are the result of our feelings. That's the real Jesus. And point B, he proclaims both law and gospel. He proclaims calamity and comfort. He proclaims fire and forgiveness. He proclaims sin's consequences. He does that. Our gospel, our first reading for this evening, Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, that's the law. Turn away from sin while there's time. Turn away from sin tonight so that you don't have to answer for it when you stand before him on the last day. That's the law. Repent, and then the gospel, believe the good news. Believe the good news that you are forgiven for Christ's sake. That's our Savior. He proclaims both law and gospel and sin's consequences. We read in Matthew 25, when he comes again, when all the nations are gathered before him, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and all his angels. It was not prepared for you. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But we can end up there by refusing the Savior. But he says to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom. See, it's a gift. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And point C, he came to call not the righteous, those who think they're good without Christ, those who feel the affirmation of the cheerleading Jesus. No. He came to call sinners call people like Peter, James and John, you and me. The Apostle John wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. No one else is deceiving us. We're deceiving ourselves if we say we have no sin. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that word confess means to agree with when we confess our sins, we're simply agreeing with God about ourselves. When we do that, it's for one reason only. We are willing to confess our sinfulness in the presence of God because we know that in his presence we already have forgiveness. That's faith. St. Paul wrote in Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's Jesus. Where our sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
That's the real Jesus. And that's the Jesus in whose presence we can afford to be honest about our sinfulness because we know that in his presence we have forgiveness. That's the Christ we proclaim. That's the Christ of Holy Scripture. That's the Christ who welcomes you and me and all who acknowledge their need. And all who acknowledge their need find the warmest welcome. In Jesus' name.